1: Welcome to Florida Matters More, the podcast for Florida Matters, WUSF public media show about the issues and events that Floridians care about. I'm Robin Sessingham, host of Florida Matters. You can hear Florida Matters Tuesday evenings at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 7.30 on WUSF 89.7 or streaming on WUSFnews.org. You can also hear it Mondays at 10 p.m. on Classical, WSMR 89.1 and one hundred three. Well, this week on Florida Matters, we're talking about the variety and the richness of the bird population in Florida with Ann Paul, Tampa Bay Area Regional Coordinator for Audubon's Florida Coastal Island Sanctuaries. She's an expert in waterbird populations and management for coastal habitats for wildlife, and she's on the board of the Tampa Bay Conservancy. Mary Keith is president of the Tampa Audubon Society, and Dave Goodwin has been birding in Florida for over 50 years, currently has the third highest list total for the state. He's also the former president of the Florida Ornithological Society. Thank you all for being here. Pleasure to be here. Here's something I always wondered about. When I'm on the river, specifically the Manatee River, there's flocks of seabirds flying upriver in the morning and then downriver at dusk flocks of them why are they doing are they just following the sun why, why do they do that
0: they're looking for food they know the best areas to feed they, they'll roost along the, the gulf coast fish crows are known for this They'll uh, uh, roost in the man- mangrove islands along the coast and they'll fly inland during the day to feed and in the evening they'll turn around and go back to their go- nests Yes. Well, not the nest, just the the areas where they roost. Uh, They only nest for a couple months out of the year, and the rest of the time they just roost in in large flocks.
1: Roost sleep.
0: Yep. Okay. And uh, gulls will do the same thing. They'll fly inland. That's Uh, what I'm seeing. Beth, if you've got a dump, if there's a city dump out there or a county dump, the landfill, Mm -hmm. they'll fly out to the landfill to feed during the day and then back to the beaches. It's funny.
1: It's just like the factory workers, you know, clocking in, and then at the end of the day they're going back home, you know, work's over. Are they laughing gulls,
0: those yes. really that's loud the, seagulls? Yes, that, that's the one we have most of the year. That's the only year-round gull that we have here. the laughing gull.
1: Okay, and they sound like they're laughing. Yes. All right, let's talk about flamingos. I just saw some auto, uh, research coming out of Audubon that said flamingos are actually a native species to Florida.
2: Right. Well, this is something that um, our team down in the um, Everglades Science Center looked into and uh, what they did was they looked at some past his, historical records. what did people like like John James Audubon or some of the early explorers to Florida see when they were in the state. And flamingos are included in the in the lists of animals that were seen here. So but flamingos were pretty much shot out by the plume hunting trade that was to provide for the fashion for Feathers and the ladies' hats, it, the yeah. hats. Mm-hmm. And particularly through the 1880s and well into the 1920s or so, um, it, this was something that uh, was an exploitive uh, use of of birds um, that really took the the birds out of the the environment for th- an economic gain.
0: And sort flamingos
2: of- were so obvious, such big, magnificent pink orange birds, and um, they were apparently shot out. You know, we actually have a town in the Everglades called Flamingo. and And everybody thought that was just because for many years that it was just because people were confusing the roseate spoonbills, which are also pink as flamingos, and a lot of people do. However, Now we think that it was actually named after this remarkable animal that was shot out. For years and years, we have had a nesting population at the Hialeah Racetrack. We also have a nesting population at Homosassa Springs State Park, by the way. And then there are flamingos that are kept at Busch Gardens and other places like that. uh, So for a long time, they
1: thought that they were just escaped... Uh, from zoos or something, and that's why we had them. But so but this is new to think. Yeah, no, they're Florida birds. This is
2: this is new, and now we are seeing birds out in the um, Florida Bay area, particularly um, south of the Everglades, on those beautiful uh, open flats. And the recognition is they were part of the original ecosystem of our state. Um, they should be here,
1: and hallelujah, some of them are back. What about bald eagles? Are we? Is our bald eagle population in Florida rebounded, Dave?
0: Yes. It's doing fine. Uh, one of the biggest problems eagles had back in the 70s when the, they declined so much was the fact that DDT was causing a weakening in the eggshells. And when we banned DDT, we started seeing immediate recovery. And the numbers of ospreys, bald eagles, and other fish-eating birds because it was a chemical that was getting into the food chain. Mm -hmm. And uh, the numbers have increased dramatically in Florida. I can remember doing Christmas bird counts back in the early 70s when you got one or two bald eagles, you were happy. And uh, a few years ago, in one of the counts I did, we had 37 bald eagles on one Christmas count.
1: Fantastic. So (laughs) even with it being such a big bird and even with habitat fragmentation... They can live in urban areas, yes, right? Yes, they can. Mm-hmm. So they're okay.
3: And, and they are adapting very well because it used to be that they were almost exclusively in high pines. Well, we're losing a lot of our pines, but they are adapting. They are using um, cell phone towers, big pylons for the electricity, transmission towers. I watch a uh, monitor, a nest out in um, Trout Creek that's on a cell phone or that's on a transmission tower. They've got two healthy babies just about to leave the nest. And um, I monitor a nest down at Rogers Park Golf Course. It's on a cell phone tower. So they're not the natural, original choices for where to put nests.
1: Just like ospreys do. But
3: yes, Mm -hmm. but uh, but ospreys have always preferred like a, a bear tree. Eagles used to be they wanted something that had a roof overhead. They wanted pine canopy overhead. And now they're accepting, so they're being more adaptive than we expected they would be because while they've got the right food now, they're losing the native roost or nesting locations, but they're making do, and mm-hmm. we've and got a lot of have, urban birds. They yes. have more
1: competition now that they're rebounding, yep. so they can't be as choosy about the, <laughs> about the roost, I guess.
2: If. If somebody's interested in watching a bald eagle's nest, um, the Flor- Audubon Florida has a center for birds of prey that will sign you up at an eagle's nest, and you can, can monitor it. We call it Eagle Watch, and it's a lot of fun to do, but it's also very important. It turns out that a lot of the eagle watchers are in the urban community, and the eagle nests that are in the urban zone are the ones that typically run into some kind of difficulty um, and so having people watch and monitor them helps to protect those nests.
1: So like what kind of difficulty?
2: Um, disturbance. Um, say say the cell tower goes out and the technician wants to climb the ladder to, to fix it, and there's an eagle nest
3: up there, things like that. Okay. Or, or construction. You know, it could be that the cell tower was originally in in a fairly unoccupied area, and all of a sudden there's going to be a housing development go in, well, if you've got that much, you know, bulldozers and trucks and everything else within too, too close to a nest, the parents could abandon it. So sometimes it means delaying that construction until the babies are off the nest, then you can go in and do your building. I see. And the birds will probably come back next year. But if you're there when they're trying to feed babies, they're just going to abandon it and go.
1: One thing we talked about on our Florida Matters, on the show, was the biggest threat to bird populations. And you talked about habitat loss and fragmentation. What about plastic? When you look along the waterways, the rivers, you see so much plastic. And I'm wondering for the seabirds if that's become a big problem. Well,
2: it, it is a big problem, particularly for the, a lot of the pelagic seabirds, like albatrosses and so forth.
1: What is pelagic?
2: Uh, it means the middle of the ocean stuff. but our birds also have a problem in, in the region with fishing line. We're having uh, we've identified that fishing line entanglement is the number one cause of mortality for brown pelicans in the state and it is impacting our population. So we've been asking fishermen to one never feed the birds, Don't bring them too close to you. Don't teach them that they can come and get food from you where you're trying to fish because then you might accidentally catch one. Mm -hmm. And if you do catch one, reel it in and uh, cover your eyes to protect your eyes because the bird won't know that you're trying to rescue it. It'll think you're just trying to eat it Mm -hmm. later. Um, But um, cut the barb off and let, let the bird go. In that respect, it is a real problem. I think there that it's clear that garbage in our waterways and and is a real problem that we really do need to address. And Keep Tampa Bay Beautiful is working on it hard. I know that um, a lot of people uh, do the cleanups with. With that organization, we all do. <laughs> right. And, yeah. But I tell you what, I'm kind of tired of picking up other people's trash. I think we just need to day individually, let's, yeah. let's do better.
1: So for so the fishermen, uh, don't feed the pelicans. If you catch one, cut the barbs off, reel it in, cut the
3: barbs off, and then make sure you've got all your line with you when you leave. Right. And, and if you can, if you're out canoeing, you say you're, you know, you're on the river. If you see a bobber and line hanging you know, from a bush, if you can, pull it down, get it out, because that, too, can ensnare a bird. A bird trying to fly through gets caught, and all of a sudden it's hung up, and it's going to hang there and starve. So that's killing the brown pelicans the most, then. It's, as far- it is it's, the
2: number one reason that our brown pelican population isn't more robust.
3: Ten- Tampa Audubon started a project, I think it's been like four years ago now, uh, called Don't Cut the Line. Uh, Because several of our members were down at the Skyway fishing pier and saw how many pelicans were there that had hooks in them, fishing line wrapped around a wing, a leg, a bill, whatever. The first year that they had a team going out to help catch those entangled birds and free them and either take them to rehab or just release them – They had over 500 pelicans, which is, you know, a good portion of our breeding population. Two years ago, after several years of education, so putting up signs, working with the fishermen down there to, you know, how to cut the barbs off and back the hook out, how to not feed them, putting out the, the filament tubes, you know, to take the old line, things like that. Um, they were down to under a dozen pelicans. That's, that's
1: wonderful.
3: It's amazing. But, you know, and it
1: is so distressing, though, I mean, to tell them to reel it in. If you've seen a fisherman catch a, a seabird, a pelican, or a seagull or something, it's very distressing to see them reeling it in and have the bird fighting them. You kind of – it does seem, you know, to tell you, just cut the hook and let it go, you know. Yeah, but, cut the, wi- cut if if the line.
2: If if they cut the line and let it, let the bird fly mm-hmm. away – it's going to fly to a mangrove island, say, and roost, and the and the long line that's streaming out behind it will become entangled, and then the bird hangs and dies there. Mm-hmm. So by cutting the line, they have doomed that animal to death. But it's not just that. The line, after the bird rots, and falls, you know, the bones fall off of that line. The line stays in the in the um, mangroves, and it catches other birds. So it is a long-term snare. It's awful. Mm -hmm. And it's a carnage. I just have to use that word. Um, There is just no way that we could, it's it's silly that people who are fishing should have this kind of impact on our native bird population. And I think it's inadvertent. I think most fishermen are good conservationists and they just don't realize. And that's what our education opportunity is doing but the real thing is don't feed them you know they're not they may have a bird brain but they're not completely stupid they will know if you will feed them they will come over and that puts them into the danger zone
1: well I was gonna I was just gonna ask you one more thing which was what kind of binoculars do you recommend for somebody who wants to start watching birds
2: well I would recommend buy the best binoculars you can afford Um, Don't stint and don't expect to share a pair with your spouse because that will be not funny. Essentially, for general bird watching, a magnification of about seven 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 is recommended. Um, A magnification of about seven is recommended. And then the second number that is on the um, binocular description has to do with how wide the lens is. So pretty much as wide as you can get the lens, um, but sometimes times, the, f- the magnification times five works out to be a good proportion. And the reason you want a, lo- a wide lens is because that lets in more light. So when you're looking at the bird, you can see what colors they really are. And um, binoculars really help um, somebody see the birds. They are there. They're in beautiful colors. They, they're not in color t- to entrance us. They're in colors to signal to either their mates or to be able to hide from
3: predators. If I could add something to your question about uh, what kind of binoculars, the the two other things that I would add in addition to what Ann said about looking for the magnification, one of them is make sure binoculars are adjustable so you can move the lens, the, the two eyepieces, further apart or closer together because most of us have a different space between our eyes. And it is so frustrating when people buy binoculars and they can't get them close enough Mm -hmm. for their eyes. Uh, So make sure that they fit your eyes and then find a pair that's comfortable in your hands. Right. If they're too heavy, you're not going to want to carry them.
1: I was going to say weight. People don't want to carry heavy binoculars Mm -hmm. around their neck even.
3: Right. Yeah try a variety of them and find a pair that feels comfortable in your hands because there's a humongous variety that's out there now. It's a wonderful thing though to be able to see what the birds are doing, to
2: see the colors, to see the changes of the their colors when they go into their breeding condition. This is exciting and um, I would just like to say too that people shouldn't be too concerned about Um, starting as a birder. We all know more about birds than we think we know and you can build on that knowledge very easily but you'll never reach the end of it. Every day when you go out it's exciting. You never go in the field that you don't learn something about birds that you didn't know before. Through observation and the stuff that you can see maybe others have never seen before. This is this is what it's all about. It's an adventure.
0: Yeah, after well, 52 years, I'm still learning every time I go out.
3: Yeah. And I would add one other thing to what mm-hmm. Ann said about it being exciting. When I'm out leading a bird trip and people see the bird doing something unusual, I say, of course, we haven't taught them to read English yet. So they haven't read the book, so they don't know what we think they're supposed to be doing. They're going to do whatever they want, and that's what makes it so much fun. Keep watching them.
1: Mary Keith is president of the Tampa Audubon Society. Ann Paul is Tampa Bay Area Regional Coordinator for Audubon's Florida Coastal Islands Sanctuaries. And Dave Goodwin is a former president of the Florida Ornithological Society. Thank you guys so much. It was really fun. It was, thank you Our pleasure, you. we really enjoyed it too That's it for today, thanks for joining us Listen to Florida Matters Tuesdays at 6.30pm Sunday mornings at 730 On WUSF 89.7 And you can always find it online At WUSF.org I'm Robin Sussingham Come back next week for another episode Of Florida Matters More If you like what you hear, please leave us A review and subscribe iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher